So please turn with me to Mark 10, 32 through 45. We heard the sermon text read this morning. That's where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning. Mark 10, 32 through 45. So there really is no other holiday like Christmas that just drums up the feelings and the longings for home. It's, it's what people do at Christmas. They go home. We write songs about it. No place like home for the holidays. That's why every Christmas movie or episode or Hallmark movie series, dare I say, uh, has the element of this homecoming or coming home. It's just, it's, it's what we do at Christmas. We can't escape it. Even if we did not have a good home life, then this time of year can, can still drum up feelings of longing for a home that we never experienced. It's just a reality. Christmas and home go hand in hand. Um, the desire for home itself has got to be one of the most universal human experiences, is it, is it not? I mean, we can all relate in some degree. We can all remember the feeling if, if you went to public school of, of being trapped in the classroom, just waiting for that bell to ring so you could just, what? Be free and go home. Or we might remember when we spent the night with a friend or went to a summer camp or a sports camp where you're away from home for a little bit. And even in the midst of all the excitement and fun, there would inevitably arise a little twinge of homesickness. I can remember that happening to me one time after going to football camps over the summer about three weekends in a row, and by the last one, I was just, I was calling home. I just wanted to come home. And, and perhaps the most extreme example that we can think of is what we've seen just last, these last couple weeks, uh, hostages that were people who were kidnapped and held hostage by the Hamas terrorist group, and perhaps you've seen some of those videos where they've been released and, and are reuniting with family, and what did those hostages long for who were trapped? They just wanted to go home. So these themes of Christmas and longings for home, they all come together in the Advent season. Advent is that season of longing and waiting for Jesus, the Redeemer, the King, the Messiah, to come and save his people. And so we remember his first coming, but we also look forward and anticipate his second coming when he will return to bring us home into the kingdom of God. So it's remembering and looking forward. And last year, I wonder if you remember, I won't test us on this, but last year we asked three questions in our Advent series. We asked who, why, and what. We, we approached the Advent series by asking who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come the first time? And, and what awaits us, Jesus' people, at his return? And so we will embrace this framework again. And, and what we'll find is that we can find all these answers, I think, in our passage today in Mark. And Mark itself, in any gospel we read, is, is really a, the message of Advent, isn't it? It's, it's the message of the gospel. Mark is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. Follow him. We probably have that memorized by now. And we've recently seen that the kingdom of God, that Jesus comes in ushering, turns the values of the world completely on its head. 
the world would say, live your best life now. Live for yourself. You do you. Self-actualize. Embrace your self-identity, self-security. This is how you live life. But the kingdom of God says the opposite. It says losing your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake. That is the only way to find true life in eternal life. Likewise, we've seen the kingdom of God turn greatness on its head. The world says that greatness must be attained. You must go out and get it. It doesn't matter who gets in your way. Shove them aside, dominate, domineer, and go and take greatness. Be first in line. But the kingdom of God says the opposite. It says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It says, if many who are first will be last, you, you are last to be first. Now, nobody, not even Jesus' disciples, grasped this reality of the kingdom. So we see today in our third and final passion prediction that Jesus makes in Mark. Remember, we've seen two other predictions where Jesus says, uh, speaks of his coming Rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. Here's the third and final one. And what we see in this, in the, the following teaching, is that Jesus truly is a pioneer blazing a trail into the kingdom of God. Everyone else is lost. Everyone's compasses are broken. They cannot make the climb. And Jesus is setting out to, to bushwhack his way and carve a trail through the world and through its idols and through its values into the kingdom of God to make a way and show others the way. All this comes together in really what is an earth-shaking gospel proclamation that undergirds our entire passage this morning. It's, it's, it's what our hope and faith is built upon in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the foundation underneath this whole text in Mark 10, 32 through 45. So we'll consider this passage in, in two parts. First, verses 32 through 34, we will see the divine king's gospel highway. We heard a little bit of that highway in our reading this morning from Isaiah 35. The divine king's gospel highway. That's verses 32 through 34. Then in verses 35 through 45, we will see the divine king's gospel. What is it? It is glory through his ransom. The divine king's gospel is glory through his ransom. It's verses 35 through 45. And the message that we take from all of this is that Jesus came to ransom you and to bring you home into the greatness and glory of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to ransom you and to bring you home into the kingdom of God. So first, look with me at part one, verses 32 through 34, the divine king's gospel highway. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, What was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. 
So we've known uh, that Jesus and the disciples are back in Judea. We've noted that they're headed to the cross. We've discerned that in the, these last few weeks. But here, Mark makes it explicit for the first time. He says they are going to Jerusalem. And that should strike us, because what is associated with his going to Jerusalem? Well, we see it here in verse 32 through 34. Jesus is going to die. That's, that's the feeling we should have when we read that. Going to Jerusalem means Jesus is going to die. In light of that, I want you to notice then Jesus' direction and his demeanor as he heads towards Jerusalem in the first part of verse 32. He's heading to Jerusalem, God's holy city, God's temple on a hill, the mountain of God, and here is what we see in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So first, his direction. Jesus is going up. He is going up to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to do some biblical theology here. There's no coincidences in God, yes, and in his word to us. Yes, this going up makes sense because Jerusalem is geographically on a mount higher than all the surrounding regions. So when you went to Jerusalem, you naturally went up. But see God's intentional design here that he even worked into creation. We know that the original dwelling place of God, the home for God and his people, was in the Garden of Eden. And we know that the Garden of Eden was a mountain. And you say, how do we know that? Well, Genesis 2.10 tells us that out of Eden flowed a river. And where, where do rivers typically find their headwaters? They find it at a place of higher elevation in the surrounding region, a higher mount, a higher point. And in the fall, humanity was banished from God's presence, his holy mountain, his dwelling place. In fact, you could say that a central plot line to all of Scripture, all of the biblical narrative, is asks how can sinful man return to the mountain of God? How can man be back in God's presence once again on God's holy mountain. And Psalm 24 asks this very question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's no coincidence. The temple of God is on a mount. And who is this one with clean hands and a pure heart? Well, we see it in Psalm Two, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of a decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the man who will finally summit God's holy hill once again will be a king. And not just any king, he will be a divine king, the son of God. This is the direction Jesus is going. He is going up to Jerusalem. In mountaineering, Alpining, the first successful documented climb to the top of a mountain, is called the first ascent. The one, the one who does this makes a route to get to the, the summit. Well, here, what do we see regarding Jesus' demeanor? His direction is going up the mountain of God. What do we see about his demeanor? Jesus was walking ahead. 
Mark wants us to notice this. This is the only time in Jesus' journeys with his disciples that he goes out ahead of them. What's Jesus doing? He is making the first ascent up God's holy hill. Jesus is pioneering the route that will lead to the summit. Jesus went out ahead of you and me. The gospel right here in the first half of verse 32. He was going up the mountain of God and he went ahead of us to make a way. This is no mere physical elevation game. This is the answer to the fall. And notice Jesus' demeanor even lands on the disciples and those who follow him a little differently. In, in verse, the rest of verse 32, we read that they are amazed and they followed and those who followed were afraid. Why? Well, we, the last time we saw uh, those who were following Jesus, the disciples, when they were afraid, was when Jesus gave his second prediction of his death. And it said, that there we read that they didn't understand and were afraid to ask him. It's the last time we saw them afraid. So there seems to be a tie here with, with the knowledge of, okay, we're going to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus said he's going to die what does this mean? I don't fully understand. I thought we were going to overthrow the Romans. Does this mean we're, going to, we're about to go into the fray here? Or what's going to happen? What does Jesus mean? He's going to, they're afraid as Jesus unflinchingly charges out ahead of them. And so Jesus, once again, pulls them aside and proclaims in more detail than he has yet the gospel path that he is walking, the gospel path path that he's told them over and over again to be instructive for us the gospel word is never the wrong answer it's the old sunday school answer and that's what jesus does here he gives the most detailed account notice three things he says he will be mocked he will be spit upon he will be condemned these are very specific things that mark is actually going to show will happen he will be mocked he will be spit upon he will be condemned Secondly, notice that Jesus says he will be delivered over. He says this twice. Now, this original word can also mean betrayed. So there's certainly an element of Jesus' being handed over by Judas, his betrayal. But it's also what we call a divine passive. We talked about it once before. Ultimately, Jesus is not being handed over by man. Jesus is being handed over as was the plan by God. God is handing over his son. Jesus lays down his life willingly. Third, notice the title, Son of Man. In every prediction of his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. And we've talked about this before. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Just recall, one like a Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days and was given everlasting dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is everlasting, will not pass away, and the kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is, is referring to himself as this divine king who has all authority and deserves to be served by all. We're beginning to answer our who question, the who of Advent. Jesus confirms what we saw in his going up and going ahead. He is this divine king. He is this son of God who is going out ahead of his people, blazing a path up the mountain of God. This is who Jesus is. He's a divine king. So first, 
answer. Who is Jesus? And the highway, the Isaiah 35 highway of holiness that he is making, is the only way into the kingdom of God. The gospel of his death and resurrection is what cut the path to greatness and glory. And so his people should follow. But what do the disciples hear in the midst of all of this? Let's look at part two, verses 35 through 45. The divine king's gospel is glory through his ransom. Now we'll look at this portion in two parts. First, we'll see in verse 35 through 41, the wrong way to glory in the kingdom of God. And then second, in verses 42 through 45, we will see the only way to glory in the kingdom of God. So first, the wrong way. And leave it up to his disciples to show it to us, right? Verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So first, let's consider these sons of thunder, James and John, and this interaction here. So picture this. Shouldn't be hard because Mark has literally just put two scenes right next to each other. Jesus just gets done sharing in the most detail yet the giving of his life, the suffering he will undergo, and yes, his resurrection, but a, a lot of suffering and a lot of death before. And the first thing that James and John think to ask about this is, hey, Jesus, we want you to do something for us, and we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. So it's, it's, it's not a, a good look so far. But I, 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 before we kind of dog on them too much, which we will a little bit, but I, I want to at least note this. They come to Jesus and ask. And they get an answer. Perhaps it's not exactly what they're looking for. But because of their relationship with Jesus, they come to him and ask. And they receive the gracious gift of correction. If we never come to Jesus with our questions, if we try to fix ourselves before we come to him, we will never come to him. Don't be surprised when you do come to him And find out that your entire motivation for asking something, your entire outlook on it, was completely off base. But what do you receive when you come to him and ask? Sometimes the gracious gift of correction is the best gift you can give. And that's what James and John receive here, because they are in relationship and in communion with Jesus. So be thankful, grow, and keep coming to Jesus, your king, even when you get corrected. Okay, side, side note, sidebar done. So James and John are already not sporting a good look here. They appear to be in this for themselves, thinking of themselves, and they're trying to, to get Jesus to agree to something before they even tell him what it is, right? But Jesus is not a cosmic genie. Jesus is not some, some supernatural butler We will learn to ask in accordance with Jesus and who he is and his character and his will. He's not just going to give every little 
thing we ask. And so their question is met with, what do you want me to do for you? It's not so easily roped in. They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Where on earth does this question come from? Where are they getting this? Well, if we're familiar with the parallel passage in Matthew, in in a scene right before this, when Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler, there in Jesus' teaching to his people, he says that the disciples will reign on 12 thrones with Jesus in his glory. But in between that, Jesus offers this gospel message of his path to glory, his dying on the cross, his suffering rejection. But forget all that. The thing that sticks out in James and John's head is, we get to sit on thrones with him? Well, I want the most important seat. And that's what they're asking here, the most important seat. We'll see this. But consider just the nature of this desire of wanting to be right there in God's glory, in Jesus' glory. Is it totally wrong? No. The disposition of the heart, if the desire is for nearness of, to Christ, if the desire is to be to, near to him for his sake because of his glory and wanting to bask in that and just get as close as we can to him, that should be our desire, right? That's a good and right desire. The nature of the question here tells us that James and John's motives aren't so pure. The seats at the right hand and the left hand are places of honor, notoriety. They're not interested right now in Jesus' glory and getting close to his glory. They're interested in their own glory and their greatness. Hey, look at me where I'm sitting. So that's their will and their desire right now. It's not right from the start. But forget the wrong motives here. Because Jesus actually doesn't even address that first. What does he, what does he say? What does he address? Verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink? the cup that I drink, or implied, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You're ignorant. And what does he tie that ignorance to? He doesn't first tie it to their will. He ties it to their ability. And that's the nature of this question. It's, not, it's, more, it's a rhetorical question, so we actually read it. You are not able to drink the cup that I drink. You are not able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized. You're not able to do this. You don't even know the way to go. You don't know the route. You don't know the way up God's holy mountain, and you couldn't climb it if you knew. Man, for centuries, has been trying to climb back to the mount, climb up the mountain of God, and they are not able. It ends in misery and sin when man is pursuing their own greatness from the start. Jesus says, you, you are not even able to do it. Well, what's this cup in the baptism that Jesus refers to? Well, it's certainly his suffering 
and his death. And we see this cup again in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Jesus is asking God, please take this cup for me, asking the Father, remove this cup from me. It's the cup of God's wrath that Jesus will drink to the dregs. The baptism is, is the deluge of water that we think of in God's judgment in, at the time of Noah, subsuming the earth. It's God's wrath that will consume Jesus completely. It's the suffering and death that's beyond just physical. It is the suffering and death of being forsaken by God, the all-consuming fire. That's the cup. That's the baptism. And Jesus says, you are not able to do that. And what did James and John say? Ever competent, ever ignorant. They say, we are able. Now, we don't, even though I kind of laughed a little bit, we don't laugh at this because this is us. We think we can. We, or better, we are blind to our need for having it done for us. We're blind to our need for correction. Sinfulness leads to blind insanity. Our own sin becomes our judgment. Their own sin here, the desire for greatness, their focus on self has become their own judgment. They think they can do something and they need to be saved. They don't see the full picture of the gospel and you say, well, then why does Jesus answer the way he does? Look at verse 39 through 40. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Contradiction. How can, how can Jesus say, you are not able, and now he's saying, but you will. Presently, they are not able. In the future, they will. They will drink Jesus' cup because Jesus first drank the cup and tasted all the bitterness of God's wrath. And when they drink the cup, they will taste nothing but the sweetness of mercy and grace. And they will be baptized into Jesus' baptism. And because Jesus was baptized first and consumed by God's fiery wrath, when, when they receive the baptism, it's not a, not a picture of, of being consumed in God's wrath. Rather, it's a picture of being, being cleansed in the healing waters of salvation. Being raised to new life. They drink Jesus' cup and receive the blessing. They drink Jesus, or they are baptized with Jesus' baptism and receive the blessing while Jesus took all the curse. So how are they able to do this? And they will then, in fact, suffer and die, many of them, in like manner to their Savior. And how are they able to do all this? Because Jesus did it first, just as God had planned. And that's what he says here. Greatness and glory in the kingdom of God is not a thing we humans earn or attain. Those seats aren't up for grabs in that way that we're earning and and getting them by merit. It is granted by God in grace for those whom he has prepared it for before time. That's what Jesus says. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. God has planned all of this thing out in eternity past, and he's even assigned the seats. 
but they are certainly not thinking in all of these terms. The rest of the disciples' response reveals this even more clearly. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why are they mad? Now, Mark uses the same word here to describe Jesus' anger as, as he used, indignant, when he used to describe Jesus' anger when he saw the disciples holding back the children, the least of these, the one who, who make up the kingdom of heaven, when they were keeping those children back from coming to him, Jesus was indignant. And now here, this is where there's some thick irony we see that the disciples are indignant at James and John. And it, it's not because they're thinking, well, there goes James and John again, just misunderstanding greatness in the kingdom of God. When are they going to get it? No, they are angry. They are indignant because James and John appear to have the inside track to the good seats, into God's greatness, into their own greatness. As one commentator notes, they are angry because James and John appear to have beaten them to the punch. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's at this point that Jesus pulls them all aside again, not just James and John. He pulls them all aside and says, you need to learn something about greatness in the kingdom of God once again. And we see him giving another lesson on greatness in the kingdom of God. And just note God's patience. How many times has Jesus again and again and again corrected his disciples in their misguided notions and their chasing after themselves and what greatness and glory in the kingdom of God looks like? How many times will we come to God again and again with our failures, with our sins? His patience is infinite. It will never run out on you. The only thing that will keep us from benefiting God's patience is our presuming upon him and not coming to him. Is our own patience running out on ourselves and not coming to him to receive his gift of grace in open-handed trust. Do not harden your heart when sin reveals itself, whether in yourself or when Others make it known. Come to the God of all patience. His patience is infinite. So here, see how Jesus patiently corrects the disciples' notions. He will ultimately do something here that he hasn't done in other instructions about his greatness and so explicitly. Here he ultimately roots everything about greatness in the kingdom of God in himself. Essentially, he's going to be saying the gospel reality, the way to glory in the kingdom of God, is through a ransom that the divine king himself pays. This is why greatness looks this way. So look with me at verses 42 through 45. The only way to glory in the kingdom of God. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of, Gentiles, uh, rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here's the foundation, the cornerstone. For the reason for all of this, 
even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus makes clear that the the disciples' current way of thinking is a human way. Remember, after Peter rebuked Jesus after his first uh, uh, prediction of his suffering and death, uh, Jesus rebukes him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You've set your mind on the things of man. That's what's happening here because Jesus compares the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. When he talks about Gentiles, he's, we're thinking nations. These are the, the rulers of nations, human rulers who are considered rulers in that they are a shadow of what real ruling and real reigning look like. They are an echo of the kingdom of God that has been muted and transformed. These considered rulers of the nations, how do they rule? Well, they rule by domination, by domineering, by putting their subjects under their thumb and exercising their authority and lording it over them. And the world considers that greatness. This is the temptation for all of us, this type of ruling. And you say, well, hold on, I've never had any kind of political office. But we all have our own little kingdoms, right? That we are tempted to rule and reign over in this fashion. Whether it's in our families, with our spouses, we think of our relationships with our children, in our place of work with those who are under us. The temptation is to dominate and domineer and lord authority over. And sometimes it's not just overt, overtly aggressive, right? We're really sneaky at this. We're really good at passively, aggressively lording our will and, and dominating those around us, right? We're experts at lording, at lording our will and authority over those we deem less important. We think of ourselves and look to ourselves, not others. Even unaware, we're operating in this way. But Jesus has come to pull back the veil, and he says that the kingdom of God, greatness and glory and prominence, are not things that are lorded over or achieved. Rather, these things are relinquished. Those who are great in the kingdom are those who are servants and slaves. It's those who not only look to the needs of others and put others first, it is those who consider themselves to have even another master, not themselves. Now we're familiar with this because Jesus has been teaching this over and over, but here he adds something to the truth. He adds the ultimate underlying reason for why this is the way the kingdom operates. The reason is this. The kingdom operates in this way because the king himself has set the culture. The kingdom operates in this way because this is precisely how the king ushers in the kingdom. The kingdom operates in this way because this is the trail, the, the, the route that the king himself has cut up the mountain of God. This is the way the kingdom has been established. Look at verse 45. This is your hope. This is your only way home. This is the reason greatness in the kingdom of God looks like being a servant of all and a slave of all is because even the Son of Man 
the one who has all authority, all dominion, all power in Daniel 17.13, who's been given an everlasting kingdom, who came and deserves to be served by all peoples. Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And notice what his serving is tied to, to serve and to give. You cannot separate his serving from the giving of his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the divine king of Daniel 7, 13 uh, and 14, who has all authority, all power, all dominion. And that glory is tied directly to the cross. You want to see what glory and greatness in the kingdom of God. You want to see the Son of Man in all his authority and power. You look to the cross. That is where his glory is exhibited. And the very pathway to the kingdom that Jesus calls the disciples to walk is the one that he walks first. And the route up the mountain of God is the only way, and he has freed you to make the climb by giving his life as a ransom. Now, Cody gave us a helpful look at this just last week. Uh, in the Greco-Roman context, the uh, people would sell themselves into slavery when they were indebted to somebody, but somebody could come along and pay their debt and free them. That's a good picture, but we know that our debt isn't financial. It's a spiritual indebtedness before a holy God. So this word, we can see it used even in Exodus 30, verse 12. There we see that God's people pay a ransom, money, ransom, just to be counted among God's people to make atonement for their life. Even the whole sacrificial system, we see this atonement being done as the blood of animals is poured out in order to atone for to be a ransom for our being in God's kingdom. But money, the blood of animals, doesn't atone for sin. It's a debt that's unpayable by man. These were all pointers, as the author of Hebrews tells us, to the Jesus who would be our ransom. And he would ransom us not with coin, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his perfect life. Colossians 2 gives us a picture of this. It says we all have a record of debt that God has taken up out of our midst and nailed it to the cross, and he's canceled it. But when we think of that record of debt, we know that there's a debt column, right, where, oh, this is the debt I'm taking on, but we also think of a record of debt because it, with its assets, there's an assets column if you've ever filled one out. You put your assets saying, this is how I can pay for this debt I'm taking on. Jesus takes up the whole thing, cancels it all, says your unpayable debts, covered. All your assets that you think you're using to pay it off, canceled. The only asset you have is the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. This is what has ransomed you. And so we've answered our questions. Who is Jesus and why did he come the first time? Jesus is the divine, everlasting king who is infinite, worthy of all honoring and serving. And he came in order to ransom you, to set you free. Advent is all about remembering that Jesus, our king, came to serve and ransom. But how do we apply 
the gospel freedom. So that's the who and the why. Well, we answer the what question. We apply it by recognizing that it is not an aimless, directionless freedom that we've been given. We're not like hostages who have been released and then just wander aimlessly about. That's not something we can really picture, right? It, it's, it's we've been released for a purpose and a destination. We've been released to come home to the kingdom of God. He ascended the mountain of God and pioneered a way into that glory. He ransomed us in order to bring us home. So Advent then is not only about our king's coming, It's about our homecoming. So the question, what awaits us at Jesus' second advent? Well, Jesus will come again to bring us home into the kingdom of God in all its fullness. We taste it a little bit now. So our gospel freedom is tied directly to our newfound gospel destination, home with Jesus in the kingdom. So how do we apply this as we close? Well, You must fix your eyes on where you're going, not on yourself. James and John are the negative example here. They're looking at themselves, but rather this is instructive for us as the the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We have no lasting city here. We're looking for the eternal city with the foundation and whose builder is God. Jesus has ascended to the top of God's holy mountain and anchored a belay rope there, and thrown it down to us, hooked on our carabiners, and he is hauling us up this route. And we fix our eyes on him and fix our eyes on where we're going and climb with the power that he enables us to to climb with. Fix your eyes on your destination, home in the kingdom of God. Only when we fix our eyes on our destination can we then rightly assess ourselves. So the second point of application, assess yourself. Eyes fixed on Christ, now assess yourself. Is there sin hindering in my way? Suddenly, it becomes something to shake off. Get it off because it is only hindering my way home. Am I equipped for the climb? How do I put on Christ? Where's the fruit and the things that would help me in this climb? I want to bear those. Eyes fixed on Christ is the only way. Eyes fixed on our destination home is the only way we can rightly assess ourselves. Well, how can we foster then a disposition where we want to shake off sin rather than hold it and clutch it? How can we foster then a putting on Christ and bearing fruit rather than being passive in our walk? Well, we look at our passage. We serve and we give. The act of, this is the third and final point, the act of humbling ourselves in this pattern is so against our sinful flesh that when we assume a posture of service, when we assume a posture of giving of our life to something, it is automatically going to reveal the sins and the things that hinder us. So we ask ourselves, how am I serving? How am I giving my life? It helps to localize this. How am I serving and giving my my life and my relationship with God? And then expand out. How am I serving and giving my life and my relationship with my family? with my spouse, with my children? How am I considering their needs above my own? How am I doing this, serving and giving my life in my church family? How am I serving and giving my life to my neighbors and my community and those who do not know the Lord? 
eyes fixed on Christ, we rightly assess ourselves and then we assume a posture of serving and giving. God will graciously reveal the things we need to shake off and the fruit that we need to bear. As we fix our eyes on home where Jesus, the divine everlasting king who is of infinite value and worth, worthy of all honor and all serving. You see, this king who came in order to serve you, to ransom you, and to bring you home. Now, what does it look like and feel like, this idea of home? Well, we get it, we've tasted a little bit as we noted with the Christmas season, but I think it, it, it looks and feels perhaps like Isaiah 35, Revelation 22. And I'll leave you with this. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They, the ransomed, the redeemed, will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This Advent, remember and look forward to this. Jesus, your King, came to serve, came to ransom you at the cost of his own life. And Jesus, your King, is coming again to bring you. He's coming to bring you.